This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also access at cortezcurrents.ca. In the second of a series of programs taken from her research of Whale Town's history, Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, talks about the arrival of the Union Steamships. The Union Steamship Company began service in 1889 with only one boat that was mainly to service the Burrard Inlet, not even go outside there, delivering supplies back and forth across the harbour and, of course, further up towards Port Moody. Around 1892, they realised that there was a potential for trade up and down the coast with all the canneries and logging camps and small communities starting to spring up. They started buying ships and they ended up with quite a number. The first hint of whale town being included in the Union Steamship Stops was in 1899. There was an article in the Vancouver province newspaper that stated that there was an, an elderly gentleman from whale town who had come down on the ship for medical reasons. He'd been ill evidently for some time in whale town. His name was Hitchcock and I have actually found no listing of him in the gazettes or the early census listing. No idea what he was, whether he was a logger or a farmer. There were quite a few ships, the Comox, the Coquitlam, the Chilozen, and the loggers and people using the Chilozen had a rather affectionate name for it. They called it Charlie Olson, was evidently easier to say than Chilozen. Most of them came in at some point at Whale Town. Often the stop was Whale Town and then Manson's or vice versa on this side of the island. Other ships serviced the eastern side of the island, like Squirrel Cove. A lot of these communities built big wharfs just so those big steamships could come in to visit. Whaletown was no different. There was a small, long wharf that went out into the water from the original property that Ireland had owned, then the drink waters, then the Thompsons. There was a store there, and the first post office was there as well. That was off what's now Bayview Road, Thompson's, when it had that property. There was another small wharf on the far side where the big wharf is today. And they built this big store and also a bigger wharf. There had been a smaller wharf there, possibly two more as well in that same spot. But they built a bigger wharf so that the ships could come in more easily and safely to unload in downtown. It was considered downtown because of so many things that were there. There was the store, of course, and eventually there was fuel supplies, but there was the post office, the library, the church, the clinic, and the school just up the road. So they considered that downtown for a long time. The Union steamships, they really were a necessity of life for all those living along the coast. They were the connection to the outside world, basically, and they delivered supplies that had been ordered from stores and places in Vancouver. They took back produce and things that people were sending to town, as well as passengers back and forth. There was quite a lot of that going on. People had to send a letter or written supply order to Woodward's or Spencer's or wherever they were wanting supplies from. Isolated camps would be ordering supplies, canning or logging equipment. That company in Vancouver would deliver their order to the steamship dock and it would get loaded onto the next ship going north. So they could get their supplies within two weeks 
usually because the ships were coming in once a week in the early days. And then it was stepped up to twice a week, not too many years later. The ships were notorious for not coming in on scheduled times. But if you can imagine all these orders that were sent to the ship, they included livestock, vehicles, tractors, heavy equipment, as well as groceries and passengers. So the ship would stop at little places all the way up to Whale Town, but you never knew how much it was going to be unloaded or how awkward it would be. Some places didn't have wharfs, so they had to anchor off and then boats would come out to meet them and they'd load down into usually rowboats and in some small cases, a barge. Who knew how long it was going to take at each stop? By the time they got to Whale Town, it could be nine o'clock at night, it could be three o'clock in the morning. They liked to get to Whale Town in the evening and then overnight there before continuing on, but that didn't always happen. The Farmers Institute had a very small building that they built back of the wharf for farmers to put their produce in that was going out. But it also became a waiting room because at night, especially in the winter, it was very chilly. The Women's Institute used to use that building for meetings. And then eventually they were looking for a place to store library books that they were moving from school to school and keeping in at one of the women's homes. They put some shelves in there for the women to have for their library books. Eventually, when the Farmers Institute gave that building to the Women's Institute, who turned it into the Louisa Tooker Library. So you can imagine that little tiny library building, storing things for farmers, plus leaving room for a waiting room. There was a stove in it for heat in the winter. The wharf was a very busy place because boat days were a big deal to people coming in or leaving or picking up supplies, waiting for their mail. The other little interesting story, the store owners would know who was using the store or ordering all their goods from Vancouver. And if they weren't there to pick them up, they got put into that Farmers Institute building until they were able to come and pick them up. The store owner was not very happy with the people that weren't using the store. Eventually, one of the store owners insisted they move the building off his property because it was sitting on store property, which is where the post office was before it was moved to over to Gorge Hall. The Cheslaki was coming up in the early days. It was 1913 when on the way up to Whaletown and Manson's, it sank right at the harbor tied to the dock in Venanda on Texada Island. There were two or three people that drowned in that accident. And one of them was the school teacher, Manson's Landing. She was returning from her Christmas break and she drowned in that sinking. The ship was eventually raised and patched and then towed to Vancouver, and it became the very first ship on the West Coast to be extended. They cut her in half in the middle and inserted another 20 feet. Years later, the ferries, a lot of the ferries that happened to, but it was the first one on this coast that had been extended. So when she went back into service, the Cheslaki was renamed as the Chikama. And she continued for many years after that, servicing the coast up into the 1960s. And there was another bad accident at the reef on the southern part of Cortez. One of the ships there went ashore, grounded on the reef, and sank 
but everybody was rescued off of it. Nobody was lost. And the only incident was old Mrs. Hawkins from Manson's was heading to Vancouver. And she had her daughter, who was only nine, with her. And the daughter, after they got into the little boat that was rescuing them, she remembered her doll had been left in the stateroom. And one of the crewmen actually went back and found her doll for her, which made her quite happy. And then the passengers were taken to Harriet Bay, where they went aboard another boat for overnight. And then a third boat came and picked them up in Harriet Bay and took them back to Vancouver because the boat that was at Harriet Bay was heading north. That was an incident. And the boat, I think it was the Comac, was then they towed it. They managed to pump a lot of water out of it and towed it the short distance to Manson's Landing where they beached it and there was a three-foot hole in it that they patched. And then it was towed to Vancouver for repair. And it didn't take all that long. It was back in service again, but they didn't change the name on that one. People that traveled on these boats now, the passengers, everybody spoke very highly of it. And it was like to go to Whale Town, it's like a 24-hour trip almost, overnight anyway, they didn't have staterooms, but they had pillows and blankets that they would hand out to people so they could sleep on the benches that were all around the inside of the boat. But they had a dining room that had linen tablecloths and silverware. And your fare up to Whaletown at that time was about $12. And it included dinner. That was expensive in those times, but it was quite a trip to make. And I know there's some stories from one young gal who was coming up to Whaletown to join her parents from on a school break. And she was so fascinated. She stayed up all night watching every little stop, what was being unloaded. She saw things like, oh, there was a horse and boxes of all kinds of things and groceries and a sewing machine, the old fashioned treadle sewing machine. It was nothing for them to have cars and machinery on board, too. People that were shipping things out, besides produce that was in boxes or containers of some sort, thing that was like a turkey or a chicken or a pig being shipped, they were shipped live because in those days there was no refrigeration in the early days. Chickens and turkeys had their feet tied. Chickens could be put into, crammed into small cages, but not turkeys. And so the crew had to deal with these animals on board with their feet tied. Horses and cattle that came up, they were not usually offloaded onto the dock. They were usually offloaded a little bit off the dock before the ship came in. And they would be pushed into the water or pushed to jump off to swim ashore. So they didn't have to be manhandled on the dock. And then the farmer or whoever was picking them up would be on the shore waiting to catch them when they came ashore. You've been listening to an interview with Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, about the arrival of the Union steamships. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. <laughs>